Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. These last two weeks have not gone according to plan. I know that I've stated this already, but I want to reiterate that my intention going back a few weeks ago was to start looking through the case against Robert and Christian. Unfortunately, a trip to West Memphis and coming home with COVID and no voice changed our plans. I've seen a couple social media posts where people are getting a little bit frustrated with the scattered directions that the podcast has been going into. As I've said, this wasn't planned. But I'll also say that I hear you, and I'm going to try to help you get a better understanding of where we're at today. The problem with this case is that our usual approach is to follow along with the original investigation in real time. But this case was very complex, because of the confusing crime scene, the three victims, and the two defendants. The original investigators took 10 years to make a final arrest, and another two years after that to take Robert and Christian to trial. What I'm saying is that the reason it may seem like we're spinning our wheels is because the original investigators were doing just that. This was a 10-year cold case. I'm going to open up today's episode with what one listener calls the 30,000-foot view, the overall big picture of what happened in the case. Hopefully that will help those of you feeling a little lost to have a better understanding of where we're going. After that, we're going to move on to Christian's initial statement to police, a recent interview I conducted with Robert and Christian's friend Sam, and the details of Bodmer's drive tests. This is Season 12, Episode 16, Back on Track. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. first thing that I want to make clear is that there is a very specific purpose for the method we use to investigate these cases. I know we have a lot of new listeners this season, so I should probably take a moment to explain our process. Earlier this week, a new listener posted that they've listened to every episode this season and have yet to hear a thesis or a mission statement. Something like, Robert and Christian were wrongfully convicted of this crime, and we know that because of these three reasons. The thing is, you'll never hear a statement like that on this show. If you're used to listening to shows like Serial or Dr. Death or even Undisclosed, what we do here is very different. We are very unique in the fact that everything we do is done in real time. 
the big studio shows and shows with big budgets and corporate backing will spend one to three years investigating a case, record interviews, write scripts, and record episodes before you ever hear episode one. It's a very different process. In those cases, the creators know the ending before they start writing the beginning, hence the clear mission statement. What we do here is truly a crowdsourced, real-time investigation. Myself and my team screen case submissions and look for cases of probable wrongful convictions. And then we begin. So I can't say that Robert and Christian were wrongfully convicted, because I don't know yet if they were. We're figuring that out together as we go. In this case, I saw a lack of motive, what appeared to be an impossible timeline, a weak circumstantial case, and forensics that were questionable at best. From there, we start at the beginning. We investigate the original investigation, so to speak. I don't jump ahead because I'm not interested in the case that the prosecution concocted 12 years later. I want to see the original source documents, crime scene photos, autopsy reports. I want to hear the interviews of the key players from the days and weeks after the murders, not their polished testimony from over a decade later. We investigate this case step by step from the beginning and search for the clues that may have been missed or ignored by the original investigators. This isn't a popular approach if you're looking to be entertained, but that's not what we're doing here. What I ask of this audience is to join me in an unbiased, from the beginning, reinvestigation of this case. I don't want what was said at trial to influence me or you when we're listening to a police interview from 24 hours after the murder. I'm analyzing in real time and want to know what your takeaways are based solely on the evidence we have, not clouded by something you heard on 48 Hours or Dateline. So, that's the quick version of what we do and why for you new folks out there. And now for the 30,000-foot view of this case. You're all intimately familiar with the details of the victims and the crime scene. These murders occurred on September 17, 2006. Investigators struggled to put a case together and it eventually went cold. The case sat dormant until 2014, which was an election year for the DA, and suddenly it became a priority to close this high-profile case. So then, eight years after the fact, Robert Pape and Christian Smith were arrested. By then, Robert was working as an HVAC technician and was still with his high school girlfriend, Sarah. Christian had followed through with his plan to join the Army. He became an Army Ranger and was highly decorated due to the bravery and selflessness that he demonstrated in Afghanistan. He had married his high school sweetheart, Jackie, by then. As the trial approached, the DA suddenly dropped the charges on both Robert and Christian. There was simply not enough evidence to convict them. The state's case was built upon cell phone records that could be used to make a case for the two heading up to Pinion Pines at the time of the murders, the fact that there were Vans shoe prints in the desert, and Robert owned a pair of Vans at the time, although his shoes were not a match to the prints at the crime scene, they were only the same brand. It was also discovered by the state that Robert owned guns, later, not at the time of the crime, but that he owned guns that may have been the same brand as one of the murder weapons, but they in fact could not have been the actual murder weapon. They were also proven to have been purchased sometime after the murders. Simply put, there was just nothing there but speculation. In my opinion, the biggest flaw in the initial investigation was that the original investigators never seriously considered the fact that John or Vicky could have been the target. Some of you have expressed irritation in the fact that our investigation so far is also focused on Becky. But understand, that's because we're in the phase of investigating the investigation. We have to go where they went. After the charges were dropped, the state continued to try to build a case against Robert and Christian, 
and they were finally successful. The business card that was found out in the desert was sent off to multiple labs looking for forensic evidence. Originally, the lab said that there were no usable fingerprints on the card and no comparable DNA. But 12 years later, now they had fingerprints that match Christian and also DNA on the card that matched Christian. And that was their case. What was originally noted as the termination point of the wheelbarrow tracks became a, quote, area of disturbance. Then the business card that was found some 20 yards away from the area of disturbance became a part of the crime scene. And since Christian had stated that he had never been to Becky's house, he and Robert must have been the killers. The trial didn't go well for Robert and Christian, who were tried together. Right off the bat, the judge banned them from presenting any evidence suggesting alternate suspects. They weren't allowed to show the jury anything that might point them in another direction. The state, by this point, had also found an informant who years after the fact claimed that he had overheard a conversation at the water park where the boys worked that implicated them in the murders. Think the softball girls in the West Memphis Three case. The guy's credibility is pathetic to say the least, but he never ended up having to face cross-examination at trial. Instead, his grand jury testimony was read to the jury, leaving no room to challenge it. The case ultimately was so weak that Christian's attorney didn't put up a single witness in his defense. His position was simply that the state failed to prove their case, period. Robert's attorney did put on some witnesses, but did not hire any experts to refute the state's findings. He did request that the judge allow the jury to take a field trip out to the crime scene so that they could see the road conditions, but the judge wouldn't allow it. And then, after a long deliberation, the weekend was approaching and the jury convicted on a Friday. I chose this case because, on the surface, it doesn't look to me that justice was served. The crime scene, in my opinion, indicates that Becky wasn't the target, but rather she was the interruption. Her missing shoe indicates to me that she ran out of the house during the attack rather than being killed without a trace of forensic evidence out in the desert. There's no evidence to suggest that the business card has any connection at all to the actual crime scene, and the way the forensic results were obtained is suspicious at best. The cell phone evidence is convoluted, and based on what I've learned from experts, it's incorrect. Owning a pair of shoes that happens to be the same brand as the prints found at the crime scene, but not matching those prints, means precisely nothing. The same is true of the gun. And while the drive test we'll be discussing today show that it is possible for Robert to have been at the crime scene when Becky's body was lit on fire, that window is extremely tight, requires an absolute perfect sequence of events, and is, in my opinion, not at all probable. And lastly, there's the evidence that we haven't discussed yet that points to other suspects that were ignored by police. So that's how we got here. I hope that helps clear things up for those of you who have been having a hard time tracking with what we're doing here. With all that being said, from here, we're going to continue with our process. The original investigators had very little forensic evidence and therefore relied on interviewing people close to the victims. That's where they went, and so that's where we're going. Next up, we're going to take a look at what Christian says was going on on the night of the murders. As I mentioned, I don't have his audio, but I have posted the full transcript of his interview on our website. Here, I'll just give you the basic beats of his timeline. The only glaring difference that I see with his story is that he says that he was driving his dad's Acura that night, 
And Robert had said in his first interview that Christian was driving his Oldsmobile. At least that's what I got out of the confusing conversation with Robert, where the officer thought he was talking about a hearse. Christian explained in his interview that his Oldsmobile had been in the shop for months, so he couldn't have been driving it that night. Christian was interviewed on September 28th, 11 days after the murders. His dad's in the room when the interview begins, but Detective Michaels asks him to step out so that he can speak to Christian alone. As the interview gets started, Christian asks Michaels if he knows who all was killed in the fire. Christian says, quote, The last thing I heard was they, the house was burnt down and that there was three bodies and that one of them was left outside on uh, like a dumpster or something, and the two were found in the house and they were all like burnt. And you couldn't, like, you couldn't identify who it was. Much like Robert's interview, this is either really good acting or a demonstration that Christian doesn't know yet exactly what happened at the crime scene. Detective Michaels then has Christian break down the events of the weekend of the murders, starting with Saturday morning. Christian says that he went to work at the water park at around 9.45 a.m. The park opened at 10 a.m. and he had to get there a few minutes early to set up. The park closes at 5 p.m., but the lifeguards had to help clean up, so he says he probably left there around 6 or 6.30. He says that after that, he and Robert went to Christian's mom's house where they ate dinner, which he recalls was salmon. Then Becky called Robert and said that she was in the area and wanted to stop by. Taking all things at face value, based on what Christian says here and what we've heard from Javier and what the phone records tell us, the impression that I get is that Robert was into reconnecting with Becky one way or another, but he didn't want anyone to know that. We see from the phone records that he initiated contact. Over the next few days, he was reaching out to her just as much as she was reaching out to him, if not more, but according to Christian, the impression he got from Robert was that he was just kind of humoring Becky. Christian says that when Becky called and wanted to stop by, Robert said, quote, Fuck it, I guess she can stop by. My personal opinion is that Robert didn't want Christian to know that he was talking to Becky again. That's just my hunch based on what we've seen so far. Christian says that about an hour and a half later, Becky stopped by his house. He said it was just starting to get dark, so he estimates around 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night. He says it was a short, friendly conversation out in his front yard. The three of them all chatted. Becky told them that she was working at Denny's. Christian says that she stayed no longer than five or ten minutes. Christian says that during that conversation, Becky asked them if they want to go hiking with her at some point. He says that Robert was like, oh, maybe we'll think about that. But then after Becky left, Robert said, quote, there's no way I'm going hiking with her. He goes on to say that around 10 p.m. or 11, Robert went home because his cousin was in town and he was going to go hang out with him. Then the next day, the guys were doing to work at 10.45 a.m. This is the day of the murders. Christian explains that they got suspended for the slide incident and that he got home around 6 p.m., a little earlier than normal because since they got suspended, they didn't stay and clean up like usual. So Robert went home to his house and Christian went home to his mom's house. Christian says that he was grabbing his paintball stuff because he wanted to try out a gun that his friend Sam Gayer had given him. He says that he tried to shoot it the week before, but it kept jamming or exploding the paintballs inside the gun. He had since cleaned it up and wanted to try it again. Christian says that at that point, he called Robert and asked if he wanted to go paintballing with him. He says that Robert told him that he'll go, but it'll have to be later because he needed to go to church first. Christian says that Robert is, quote, really big on church. Like he tried to always work his schedule around mass, sometimes going to work late so he can go to church first on Sundays when the boss would allow it. 
But in this case, Christian says that he'll just go with him to church, which he says he does from time to time. So he headed to Robert's house to pick him up. This would have been somewhere around 7 p.m., he says. When he picks Robert up, they start driving towards Sacred Heart Church. That's not Robert's usual church, but his mom thought that they would have a later mass that he could make. He says that Robert called the church while they were on the way and found out that the last mass was at 5.30. So at that point, they drove back to Christian's dad's house. He says that they played video games and watched some TV. And then Christian says that while they were at the house, Becky called Robert and he didn't pick up the call. Christian says that he assumes that it's because she's going to ask about the hiking and Robert didn't want to go. But then Becky called Christian and he also didn't answer. Again, they didn't want to deal with the hiking situation. He says that after that, Robert fell asleep for 30 or 40 minutes, and when he woke up, they remembered that they wanted to go shoot the paintball guns. I really wish that I had the audio for this interview. Reading it seems like Christian was nervous and kind of rambling, which is to be expected when you're being interviewed by police, especially when you're a teenager. But there's long sections where just he's talking, and you can tell that he's forgetting and confusing details about the night, or at least it seems that way to me. For example, the calls from Becky that he and Robert both ignore. He says, quote, Oh yeah, and Becky called again at that point. But he didn't mention her calling before that. He first says that Robert fell asleep, and then he remembers, Oh yeah, wait, Becky called before that. We also see instances throughout the interview where Detective Michaels is telling him just to calm down and try to think back to what happened. So he definitely also had the impression that Christian was very nervous. Christian says that they drove down to James Workman Middle School to shoot the paintball guns in the desert behind the school. He says that he parked at the street and they walked to the back. They kept trying to shoot the guns, but they were still malfunctioning. Eventually, he says they gave up and went back to his car. And at that point, Christian realized that he had lost his keys. He says they went back out to the desert. They messed around looking for the keys for a bit. He says probably 15 minutes or so. Then he remembered that at one point he'd been sitting on an old couch that was out there. So he dug through the cushions and he found his keys. He says at this point, it's probably somewhere around 10 o'clock or 10.30. He says that his car was on E and that he had to take Robert home, so he says they drove down to the AMPM gas station to get gas. He also says that Robert needed to get chapstick for his cousin, so Robert went inside the store to get that while Christian pumped the gas into the car. Then he dropped Robert off at home, and he went home to take a shower, and then he went over to his girlfriend, now wife's house, to spend the night. Michaels asked him again when they went to the gas station, Christian says between 10 o'clock or 10.30. He says, quote, I can't really say for sure. It could have been 10.40. Like I said earlier, in general, Christian's version of events that night pretty closely reflects what Robert says transpired. Like I mentioned earlier, you'll see in the transcript that Christian wasn't driving the Oldsmobile that night, which is a conflict. He also does leave a few things out in his first run-through, like the fact that he called Becky's house for one second. But later on, one of the officers in the room asks him if he ever called her, and he says, oh, yes, he did. He says that neither him or Robert wanted to go hiking, and they ignored her calls, but then he decided to call her back to tell her that they weren't going to go. He says that no one picked up the phone, and that was that. But given the one-second call on Becky's log, it seems like it must have rang four times or so, and he must have hung up just as Becky was picking up the call, so he never knew she picked up. He says he thinks that that call was around 7.45, but he says that it's been a while, so he's not sure when exactly any of this happened. And he's not too far off. That call to her landline was actually at 7.09 p.m. A big takeaway for me was that Robert and Christian weren't together when Robert had the two-and-a-half-minute conversation with Becky. In my mind, they were together for all of this. But the only time either of them ever actually spoke with Becky was when she called Robert at 6.14 p.m., 
Christian didn't pick him up until close to 7 p.m. All of this just further cements the idea into my mind that Robert was kind of playing both sides of the fence, perhaps leading Becky on in a way, but acting like he wants nothing to do with her to Christian. From reading Christian's transcript, he is either a fantastic liar, or he genuinely doesn't think that Robert wants anything to do with Becky. He never mentions the 6.14 p.m. call at all. He thinks that Robert is assuming that she's calling about the hike because of the conversation they had in the front yard the day before. He gives no indication that he has any idea that Robert had actually talked to Becky on her phone earlier that evening. Seems to me that Christian thinks that they're just not following through with the unconfirmed plans of maybe sometime going for a hike from the conversation they had in the yard the day before. When in reality, based on what we heard from Javier and the phone records, I think Robert likely did commit to hiking that night during the 6.14 p.m. call. Or at least he left Becky with the impression that they were coming that night. I'm guessing that's why he was ignoring and avoiding Becky's calls after that. He didn't want Christian to know the full extent of the situation. I'm not saying that's what's going on, that's just my takeaway. And considering these are teenage boys, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibilities. I have a teenage daughter, and I can confidently say that teenage boys can definitely be dicks. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only person that Robert and Christian talked to that night other than Becky was their friend Sam Gayer. A few episodes back, you heard me list an Andrew Gayer on the call logs. Andrew is Sam's dad and the phone was listed in his name. I reached out to Sam a couple weeks ago and asked him about what was going on that night. You're going to hear him mention someone named Jeremy Witt during this conversation. We'll be getting into Jeremy later, but he's the informant that I mentioned earlier in the episode. Here's my conversation with Sam. How do you know Robert and Christian? So we went to, um, I'd known him passing in junior high. And then we didn't start hanging out till 2005 or 2006 when they started working at the water park. Um, but we teed it off and started becoming good friends. Uh, they pretty much hung out almost every day, for, uh, or not every day, but after college. They actually lived in uh, or stayed a lot of time at Christian's wife's house now, Jackie. Mm-hmm. Down the street from me and a uh, few of my buddies that were at the water park. So we hung out uh, quite a bit. And then when I went to the army, uh, I was going to enlist with Christian, but ended up having surgery. 
So went into the army uh, a couple years later. Robert ended up still hanging out with my family. They him and Sarah used to go over to my parents' house for Walking Dead nights, like every I think it was on Fridays. And then we continued that condition after after uh, I came back. Um, but that's one of the reasons I ended up naming him my son's godfather was because he was, even though I was away in another state, we still kept connections. We still hung out, watched out after my little brother. So, so did you work at the water park with him and Christian? Yeah, I was the one that taught him the trick to turn on the slides that got him suspended. <laughs> were Were you there that day when when they got suspended? No, I was in San Diego at the time. I started uh, college at San Diego State. Oh, gotcha. That's what he was calling me to, or we were talking about on that two minute conversation. Was one, they were planning a trip up to San Diego to do uh, hang out at my fraternity. And then, as well as he was telling me, he got suspended for going down the slide. Gotcha. And he was the sound Billy, him and Christian. Gotcha. So, um, what other players did you know? Becky or Claire or Janelle, Javier, any of those other people? I knew Javier. Like we ran the same circles, but never really hung out. Like I, I was friends with Dick Crum, um, and uh, Robert, of course, and Christian. Uh, Robert and Christian knew Javier and Becky, but I, I mean, I never really hung out with them. I only heard Becky on the phone. That she would call sometimes while we were hanging out at Robert's house. What was did did, did Robert ever talk about that relationship? Um, yeah, after they after they broke up, did you get the impression that you know he wasn't happy with the breakup, or that he wanted her back, or she wanted him back, or anything? No, she was she wasn't over him. I guess is the best way to say it. She um, he wasn't, but he wasn't into her. He was into Sarah at the time. Or back with Sarah, I should say, because he dated her before. Oh, he dated her before he dated Becky? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, do you remember why Robert and Becky broke up? Uh, she cheated on him. Oh, okay. Um, so how long had you been in San Diego by the, the time of the murders? Uh, I was in San Diego August. I moved out there. Or early September. Um, and then I only was in San Diego for, uh, six months. Look, I went a little too hard with the fraternity <laughs> and then I, <laughs> um, but yeah, I was out there for, for, I guess a month, a month, month or two before the murders happened. Okay. So let's go to that night. So, so we know that you had in the, in, be- in between, you know, there's the timeline goes. Robert gets off work. He talks to Christian, um, and then uh, Becky calls him. He talks to her for a couple minutes. Then he makes the call to the church, and then uh, and then then he then he calls you. What was the the purpose of that call? What went on? He was telling me about what happened at the water park. Told me that he got fired, and then he he mentioned he was going to go paintballing with Christian because we used to go paintballing out behind James Workman all the time, mm-hmm. uh, and then. Uh, I mentioned to him that we were, I was like, hey, when are you guys coming up here? Because we were having our, um, 
I guess initiation coming up for the fraternity. Uh huh. So, so I was having them come up so they can hang out and you know do what every eighteen year old does party back then. Right. That's down Diego. So we were just kind of going over. Uh, I guess everything was pretty brief because it wasn't a big phone call. It was just, hey, we got suspended at the water park. And I made fun of him for that. And then, uh, and then he, like I said, was just mentioning that he was going to go paintball in there and talk about San Diego State. Did, did he mention anything about Becky in that conversation that you remember? No. Nothing else? None of that was? So then... Uh, it was a couple hours later. You called him back. Was there any reason for the call back? Yeah, I was. Uh, we were at a party. It was actually what's called our uh, big this night. So, like the fraternities, you get like a big brother, a twin, and a big sis. Um, so we were drinking and choosing our big sis, and I was calling him to try to uh, tell him to come down since I knew they got suspended. So I was like, "Hey, come down and hang out." Gotcha. So after, and, and that was the only contact you had with him that night, right? Yeah, I believe so. So when did you next hear from him after the murders and everything? Uh, I think it was a few days later or maybe a week later. I'm not a hundred percent sure on when the next contact was. Did he, um, when he contacted you again, did he tell you what was going on, what happened with Becky? Yeah, yeah, I heard what happened with Becky. Um, he told me that Javier was explaining to him about the wheelbarrow, um, as well as, what else was there? But that was pretty much it. He said he talked to the cops. He wasn't really, he didn't seem worried about it. Yeah, I was going to ask you, did he sound like he felt like he was a suspect or anything? No. Um, it, did, it wasn't until later that we really started feeling like we were suspects. I mean, because I was pulled in in 2007, the summer of 2007. Mm-hmm. After the fact, I think they, I'm not sure if they went and did a raid on his house or not at that time. But they pulled me in. And they tried to tell me that my truck was the one that was seen leaving the, the scene. Which I was told them that was impossible because my truck was parked out in front of my parents' house while I was in San Diego. And I was at a... Uh, that's why I remember the big sis parties because I remember that was the same night as our big sis party. Uh-huh. So did, did you have a red truck? No, I had a black Dodge. Oh, and they were still claiming that it was your truck that, that was running the fire yeah. truck off? Yeah, the cops were saying that they didn't say they ran the fire truck off. They said my truck was was uh, seen at the property. So that that's that's interesting that they they tried to. But did they say there was any other reason they thought you were involved? Was it just because of the phone calls? Uh, because of the phone calls, because of the relationship with Robert and Christian, um, and then. They thought was it. They didn't really tell me why. Just like they just said, he was just asking me about what their relationship was. Uh, Robert and Christian's relationship to Becky, as well as um, what else did they tell me? 
basically they said that, you know, they try to tell me that, you know, most of the time murderers are people you wouldn't expect, you know, they try to tell me to give you the whole run around of how, like, it could be your best friend, you wouldn't know about it. And I was like, well, obviously it wasn't Robert, I can tell you that for sure. And then he's like, well, you know, your truck was at the scene. We have evidence of your truck being at the scene. And then I kind of laughed at him. I was like, that's impossible because my truck was parked out in front of my parents' house. And then they tried to ask me where I was that night. They told him I was up in San Diego at that party and gave up some numbers or some people's contacts and confirmed my alibi. Did they follow up with you anymore after that? No, they uh, during the trial they said they excluded me because my phone things were in San Diego. Gotcha, and they, and they didn't call you to testify. They called me to testify, but then they like Nick Crumbs, they canceled our testimony. The only time I testified was when during Jeremy Witt, um testimony during the the impeachment stuff with him. Mm-hmm. And I tried to. They asked me some questions. The judge wouldn't allow it to go through. Um, they said that I can, they can ask the questions during their, uh, when they call me as a witness, which was kind of weird. Okay. But they were trying to uh, make a case against Jeremy Witt at the time. So what was the, between you, I mean, you were connected with Robert and connected with Christian for, you know, because obviously over these 10 years before they were, or eight years before they were arrested, did you did you ever get the impression that either of them could have had anything to do with it? No, no. And my my parents didn't either. I mean, my mom's a lawyer; she's pretty good at reading people, and she, like I said, she was baffled at it. And after she looked at the evidence, she's like, "This is ridiculous." Did uh, uh, sorry, I mean, to cut you off, but it just something just occurred to me. I wanted to circle back to. Uh, you said that you guys used to go out to um, James Workman and play play paintball. What was what was cell coverage? Yeah, you because know, we have this time, and it's a big part of the state's case where there was there you know, there was no service on Robert or Christian's phone. Um, what was cell service like in that area? Because they did like a drive test, but they did it you know fifteen years later, you know 10, over ten years later. Um, were there were there dead spots? Did you pretty much have coverage all over? No, nah, there was dead spots all over the valley. Uh, James Workman was one of them. We used to turn our batteries off because, I don't know if you remember back then, like if your battery was roaming, or if your cell phone was roaming, it was killing the battery. Yeah. So we would turn our batteries off every time we went out to James Workman, or turn the phones off. Because you have no service and it would just kill your battery trying to find it? Yep. That, Robert, uh, Robert's house didn't have a lot of service either. Okay, what about Christian's? I think either his house or his dad's house. Uh, they were pretty close to each other, um, and their service was pretty good over there. At the house, but when you went across, because Workman's not far from their house, right? Yeah, it's a couple blocks down, 30th. And then when you get back there, there was just no service? Yeah, because it was just straight up desert. Were there ever, other than when you guys were like out playing paintball or whatever and you would shut the phones off, did you ever know either Robert or Christian to just just shut their phones off for any reason? Yeah, we used to do it uh, when we played games in Robert's house. Pretty much any time we hung out, like if we were, like played video games or just 
doing random things, they would, uh, we would shut our phones off just to save the battery. Christian was kind of a stickler about it too, uh, especially back then because Robert was, I guess the, uh, like Sarah used to call him all the time. And if we were playing video games, these, we would have to pause the game for him to talk to Sarah. So Christian would get all pissed off and then tell him to turn it off. So he wanted everybody to shut their phones off so they didn't get uh, caught up on the love line when they're trying to hang out with the guys? Pretty much. After talking to Sam, I went back through Robert and Christian's phone records. I wanted to see if it was an anomaly that their phones were off or out of service during the time of the murders. And in a nutshell, it's not an anomaly at all. That dark spot in their records would have had a much more damning effect if it weren't for the fact that there were literally dozens of calls in just these two weeks of records where Robert and Christian had no service. In fact, there's not a single day where we don't see missed calls when they had no service. It literally happens multiple times a day. Robert even missed calls on the morning of the murders because he had no service. This was such a huge part of the state's case. When you look at the records, they look just like any other day. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For our last segment today, we're going to talk about the drive test. As a refresher, according to the expert forensic anthropologist, the very earliest that Becky's body was lit on fire was 9.46 p.m., meaning the killer could not have left the scene before then. Also keep in mind that her actual opinion was that the body burned for no more than 20 minutes, which would be moving the time then up to 9.56 p.m., which by all accounts completely blows this case out of the water. But the prosecutor got her to concede that it could have been as long as 30 minutes, but she still says that she leans more towards the 20-minute mark. And after reviewing her report and the photos of all of her test burns, I agree with the expert. It couldn't have been more than 20 minutes. At the 30-minute mark in every single experiment, the rib bones were crumbling away, and Becky's ribs were nowhere near that damaged. They looked just like the 20-minute mark in all of the other test burns. But we'll put that aside for the time being. So let's use the 30 minutes, which puts the earliest ignition time at 9.46 p.m. Then, if we assume the killers fled in the exact moment from a car parked in the Friedley driveway, they would have 37 minutes to get down the mountain and within the range of Tower 88, where Robert called to check his voicemail at 10.23 p.m., assuming the text from his cousin didn't happen before that. And, of course, we don't have Robert's text records right now. Detective Bodmer didn't videotape his drive test, but he used an audio recorder and dictated the trip as he went. This is the transcript from that drive. You'll see that he took Highway 111 from the intersection at Highway 74 up to Cathedral City, which is the same route that I took when it took me 52 minutes. His route, however, doesn't end right at the furthest reach of the cell phone Tower 88 that we see on the drive test records that came later. 
He drives all the way to Christian's house, which is maybe another mile past there. Here's the transcript. Okay, it's April the 19th, 2018. It's now 940 in the evening. We are in on the Alpine Drive residence in Pinion Pines, driving off out of the uh, driveway, making a left on Alpine. My starting miles, 23,657. This is Investigator Bodmer, Riverside County District Attorney's Office. This is a drive test in reference to case number INF160755. Now what you're going to see here is he's dictating where he's going, so you can look on a map and see where he's moving along. But also note, he leaves his drive test at 9.40 p.m. when we know the killer couldn't have left that early. They couldn't have left any time earlier than 9.46 p.m. So his time at the end, we'll have to add six minutes to that. So here he goes. Right on Jeroboa, passing Chillin Heights, passing Delamont. Left on Pinion Drive, passing Indio, approaching Highway 74. Left-hand turn on State Road 74, passing the fire station, CDF 30. Hitting the switchbacks with a view of the valley, direct line of sight. Direct line of sight to the valley, passing Vista Point. Dropping into Palm Desert City Limits. Passing Bighorn Country Club on Highway 74. Time is 10 p.m. straight up. Let me pause right there for a minute because that's worth noting. So where he's at right then, if you're looking at at a map, as you're going down Highway 74, you're still a few miles away from when you get back into the city. You're still up the mountain, but there is the Bighorn Country Club right there. And that's also where the cell tower is, uh, the first cell tower you come to as you come into town. Now, it's 10 o'clock right then, which means it took him 20 minutes to get from the crime scene to that point. He's still not down to the valley yet. And I think that's reasonable. 20 minutes is a little fast, but I think certainly if you're, if you're getting on it pretty good, you could make it in 20 minutes. So that seems perfectly reasonable to me. But wait till you hear his next timestamp, and this is where I start to have an issue. So we're at 10 o'clock straight up. He continues on. Passing Coahuila Highway, Indian Hills, passing Haystack, Shadow Mountain, coming up here, going to hit a yellow light at El Paso in 74. Green light, approaching Highway 111 and 74. It's also known as Monterey Avenue. Turning left, going south on Highway 111. Green light. Uh, He says he's going south, but he's not. He's going west and then north uh, when he turns left on 111 there. 111 and desert crossings, approaching Fred Waring Drive and 111. Parkview and 111. Passing Mag Falls. Red light at Bob Hope and 111. Time now, 10.05 p.m. Okay, so this is where I have a problem. The first part, 20 minutes to get from the crime scene down to the country club, 20 minutes seems reasonable to me. It took me, and the video that I took, took about six minutes to get out of the neighborhood back onto 74. Should leave about 14 minutes to make it through the switchbacks and get down that far. Seems about right. And also, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, when Andrew Nielsen, one of our uh, listeners who's a retired Riverside County Sheriff, uh, he did the test drive, and he videoed it also, and it also took him about six minutes to get out of the neighborhood. So we're, we're about right there. But he says he's at the country club at 10 o'clock straight up, but then he says he arrives at the intersection of Highway 111 and Bob Hope at 10.05. So he's saying it took, now I know a lot of you are locals, he's saying it took five minutes to get from the country club up on Highway 74 all the way down to Bob Hope Drive. Now, I had driven that many times, many times while I was there, and five minutes seemed insane to me. So I pulled it up on, on Apple Maps, and Apple Maps says that drive should take 10 minutes. 
Now, it may, it's only a five-minute difference, but that's double. That's double the amount of time. So he's saying he made it in half the time that a normal driver should have made it. It's a long ways. I have to track the exact miles. I don't have it in front of me, but you've got to continue all the way down, go through lights, which he says he hit some yellow lights. Now he does get some green lights and hang a left and then head up that way. So if if the speed limit is 55 miles an hour and Apple Maps thinks you can make that drive in 10 minutes and he's saying he made it in five minutes, that would mean that he was driving close to 100 miles an hour to make it. So either this is bullshit or he was driving a hundred miles an hour right through the city. I mean, right down into Palm desert on, on the main drag, a hundred miles an hour or close to it. I'd have to do the math, but if it's 55 miles an hour, takes you 10 minutes or takes you 10 minutes, then you'd have to double that speed to cut that in half, which brings you close to a hundred miles an hour. Uh, that's a big problem. And I'm not saying this is what happened, but, but I've thought through like, well, how could this be manipulated if it was a tape? Well, it's not a video. So with a tape, if, say, for example, he got to Country Club and realized, oh, shit, we're already at 10 min- or at 20 minutes, I've only got 17 minutes left to get from still up the mountain all the way to Cathedral City, all he would have to do is hit pause on the tape recorder. Just hit pause on it for five minutes and then turn it back on. I'm not saying that's what happened. But that definitely seems fishy to me. I'd love to hear any of you locals chime in and think about that drive being five minutes long. Uh, just seems really crazy to me. Now let's continue. After Bob Hope, he's sitting at the red light. Then he goes up and he crosses Rancho Las Palmas in 111, passes Indian Trail, 111 in Paxton. Uh, he says, now we're well within the city of Rancho Mirage. Then 111 in Fairway. Then 111 and Country Club Drive, 111 and Frank Sinatra, and then he hits a red light at uh, One Mirage Place in 111, and then green light after he sat at the red light. At 111 and Date Palm, he's making a right-hand turn into the city of Cathedral City, right there at Date Palm, passes Date Palm and Gerald Ford Drive, passes Date Palm and Converse, he's now passing Date Palm and Dinah Shore Drive. He says we're going to have a red light at Date Palm and Date Kelly. Then after it gets there, it's a green light. At that point, he says it's currently 12 after 10. So now he's got seven more minutes for that little stretch of road. So he's coming up to the red light at Date Palm and Ramon Road. So at that point, so it was 10, 12, probably, but it doesn't say a time, but around 10, 13. That is, from the drive test, the absolute furthest possible point where you could have cell service. That's not where he drove his test to, uh, but that's where it could be. So it's like 10, 13. If this is all legit, then that would mean that it was like 27 minutes to get there, which again, going that going the route he went on Google Maps shows that as a 46-minute drive. And he's claiming here he made it to that intersection in 27 minutes. Again, it took me to get right around there about 52 minutes. Google Earth or excuse me, Apple Maps shows that that drive should take 46 minutes and he's saying he made it in 27 minutes. So again, we're talking half, just I'm almost half, like like 60% of the amount of time that it should take based on the maps and even in about half the amount of time that I personally experienced when I drove it as fast as I could. Moving on, he goes past that or he says he's coming up to a red light at Date Palm and Ramon Road. 
again that well that's where we were where he had the um at 20 27 28 minutes around there it's a green light then another red light at date palm in baristo he hits date palm and mccollum way now he's at date palm in 30th he turns left on 30th and then gets to a stop sign on 30th and he was well into the 6800 block which is where christian's dad lives and he notes that that was 10 17 p.m uh, and then he gives his mileage at the end. And when you, I, I just did some quick math. So the trip was 28 miles in total. And he made it in 37 minutes. So 37 minutes brings us with the window of opportunity. But truthfully, if the, you know, if Robert hit the exact furthest little point where Tower 88 in some circumstances can get a signal, it would be even less than that. But let's just look at, at his drive. So he did 28 miles in 37 minutes. If my math is right, that means he averaged 46 miles per hour, um, which doesn't seem like a lot, but that average that includes the switchbacks, which if you look on the map, you'll see there's, there's no possible way you could go over 20 miles an hour. in some of those switchbacks, they're tight turns that includes all the time driving in the dirt roads. That includes his time sitting at red lights, which I think we had three red lights along the way. Uh, several stop signs as he was moving up Date Palm that he doesn't even note there, but there's stop signs there. Um, so with all that, he averaged 46 miles an hour. So that's moving pretty quickly. But as we move on, as I'm getting ready to close out this episode, so what we've learned from this is we can't say, it's not fair to say that it was impossible for Robert to have been at the crime scene at 946, lighting the body on fire, and then got back down to within range of Tower 88 by 1023. So he's proven it is possible. Now, there are still problems with that, as I mentioned. One being that I don't think the fire was started at 946. I think it was started closer to 956. And that's just based off of the expert's own report and her own opinion. I also don't think that the killers drove to the scene. I think they fled on foot, which throws the whole thing out of whack. Uh, and then the, again, he would have to hit the, uh, hit the Celta phone tower the minute he could get to the furthest point where he could reach it. But what he did, and I think that was the intent of what him to do for trial was show that this is possible. Now, I will also say that I don't trust this test. There are certain, he gives enough benchmarks there that I just think that this test is BS. I think, I think he was fudging these numbers to make things work. That being said, as I mentioned, Andrew Nielsen, who's one of our, our listeners and a retired sheriff from, uh, from Riverside, he did the drive test. He videoed the entire thing. And that is, if you go to our YouTube channel, I've posted it. There's no sound to it. It's just his video with no sound. But I posted that video up on our YouTube feed. It's up there now for you to review. And you can watch what it looks like. And he makes it in just under 36 minutes. The difference is... He didn't take 111, Highway 111, which is the way I took, which is the way Bodmer took, which is the way the state alleges Robert and Christian took. Instead, when he got down to 111 and 74, he heads, I believe it would be northeast, kind of away from the house to get to Interstate 10, gets on the interstate, and then runs the interstate all the way around the east and north side of the city, and then gets back off and comes in that way. So he went a completely different way. I've seen his whole video. I watched the whole thing. And it's, I mean, he's moving pretty good. You can see in the video where like cars are like pulling over and getting out of his way because they see him approaching so fast. 
but he's not driving insane. Like he, he, I don't see anything in there that is unreasonable that someone couldn't make that drive. So uh, because he makes it in 36 minutes, again, if it, it still takes a, a, a perfect world, it takes the far outside extreme of when the fire could have been started. It takes them being in the car, not on foot. It takes them immediately getting into the car within seconds of lighting Becky on fire. And it requires him to drive through several other coverage areas. Remember, Christian's driving, Robert's in the passenger seat. It would require him to get through all those other coverage areas and then deciding to check his voicemail, which at that point, they're a few minutes from Robert, from Christian's house, but he would decide to check his voicemail right then, right as they right as they barely crossed into the Tower 88 coverage area. Um, so with all those circumstances working, then it is possible. I, I, I refuse to use Bodmer's test because I just don't believe it. But I do believe Andrew's tests, and and if they went that route, I believe that that time is possible. I don't cons- I don't dispute that at all. But the other problem you have to deal with is why would he be going back to Christian's house if Christian picked Robert up and they drove up the mountain and committed this triple homicide and then head back down? Why would they drive past Robert's house and go to Christian's house? His car's not there. They go all the way up there just to turn around and come back. And we see from the phone records after this. Robert's on the phone to Sarah, Christian's on the phone to Jackie, Christian goes over to Jackie's house, all after this. So they didn't hang out at Christian's house. So in order for this to work, there had to be some reason why they drove all the way past Robert's house to Christian's house and then turned around and came back to Robert's house. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to discuss. Go and look at the maps, get on the website, look at the transcript. There's a lot more there that I obviously didn't read to you. Go on the YouTube channel, look at the video. We'll talk about the rest of this in the Friday follow-up. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Wood-Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. 
You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Europallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro. Driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost.